from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. You can make a solid argument that 10 or 15 years ago, it would have been a long shot to legalize marijuana in Missouri for adult use. But that's exactly what may happen on November 8th if voters approve what's known as Amendment 3. John Payne is one of the leaders to pass that measure, and he joins us on Politically Speaking to talk about what Amendment 3 actually does and respond to criticism from its detractors. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City, she is St. Louis Public Radio's state house and politics reporter. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us in studio in St. Louis, he is, I guess, running the campaign to legalize adult use marijuana in Missouri. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm John Payne. I'm the campaign manager for Legal Missouri 2022, the proponent of Amendment 3. So um, we had uh, Representative Ashley Bland Manlove on the show uh, for a separate episode, and that will be released before this one. But um, neither side will, will have heard the other side. So I guess that's kind of the fairest uh, way to go here. Um, why should voters approve Amendment 3 on November 8th? Uh, I think there's three primary reasons. Uh, first, uh, you know, Missouri continues to arrest tens of thousands of people every year uh, for marijuana, most of them for simple possession of marijuana. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's about 20,000 on average for the last 15 years. Uh, that's a tremendous waste of law enforcement resources, and it's incredibly damaging to everyone who is arrested and convicted for those offenses. Uh, so, you know, we'll put an end to that. We'll also be able to expunge automatically. Uh, most states that have some kind of expungement require people to apply for it. It's costly. Uh, it's time-consuming. Uh, but we'll allow people to have those records expunged automatically off their records, and that's going to affect hundreds of thousands of Missourians with nonviolent marijuana offenses, uh, allowing them to you know have a have a fresh start. And finally, it's going to generate uh, tens of millions of dollars in new uh, revenues to the state and local governments. And we're going to put those to important things like uh, funding the underfunded public defender program, uh, funding drug abuse uh, prevention and treatment, uh, and services to Missouri veterans, as well as actually funding those, those automatic expungements, putting some of that funding towards the courts to process those. So there's been some argument that the legislature should have handled this rather than an initiative petition. Why do you think that this is a better way to go to achieving your goal? So I absolutely agree that the legislature should have handled it. Uh, they haven't. Uh, and uh, I don't think they're likely to, if this, if this does not pass, uh, I don't think it's likely that they're going to come and uh, pass something 
that's in any way as comprehensive as what or anything at all, frankly, uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, particularly if you know if this were to not pass, I think most of the people that uh, in the legislature would look at it and say, "Well, this isn't popular. Uh, why would we? Why would we pass something like this?" Uh, so you know, I, I think that the legislature has had their chance to deal with this, uh, and it's time that we we allow the people to have a say. One of the criticisms of Amendment 3 is that people with marijuana convictions need to petition for expungement. Uh, kind of what do you say to that kind of criticism? Well, that's it's just not true. <laughs> that's the, the, the most basic thing. Uh, so there's a there's I think there's a conflation uh, of uh, there's a few different provisions that relate to uh, release from incarceration and expungement of records. Those are two separate things. Uh, and so the release from incarceration, that is something that uh, the people would have to apply for and it would have to go before a judge. And uh, uh, and basically there was a logistical reason for that. Our attorneys uh, essentially advised us that, you know, if, you, if we just say Department of Corrections, you have to release these people, they'll say, this is not our job. We need a judge to tell us that we have to release these people. Uh, and so that's the why why we crafted it that way. Uh, but with regards to expungement for the records that are already, you know, the people that have already completed their sentences, that is an automated process uh, that the courts are uh, ordered to undertake immediately beginning upon the, the uh, effective date of the amendment. And they have a specific timeline for when they have to complete those expungements by. And who would qualify? Kind of what charges are kind of under that automatic expungement? Sure. So uh, pretty much all nonviolent marijuana offenses, uh, the only exceptions are driving under the influence and sales to minors. Those things are not, uh, we're not legalizing those. So those those are not uh, included in what is automatically expunged under this. Now, there is a timeline of when those, uh, the expungements have to be done. Uh, the misdemeanors, those all have to be done within the first six months. And then uh, all A, B, C, uh, well, yeah, all all, uh, excuse me, a, all E, D, and C felonies of up to three pounds, uh, those are expunged within uh, 12 months. Uh, and then all, any felonies that are above that, they are expunged upon the completion of the sentence. Uh, so some of those, most of those will be expunged immediately as well because those are, you know, from years ago. Uh, but if somebody is currently serving that sentence, they would have to wait until it was complete before it's expunged. Now, is that subject to appropriation? Does money have to be appropriated by the legislature? for that expungement process to happen? No. Uh, so it, it helps uh, if the, the money is there to do it, but the courts the, the courts have an order to do it. Uh, there's no prohibition on uh, an unfunded mandate in an initiative petition. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we tell various uh, agencies of the government that they have to do as part of, uh, of this initiative, and that is one of the things that the courts have to do. They're, they're under an order to do it. It doesn't say uh, contingent upon funding being appropriated by the legislature. But we do include money in there for them to, to make that process easier and quicker. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I know that's been one of the criticisms that, oh, well, this won't happen because the legislature has to appropriate the money. Well, here's the thing. Uh, the legislature cannot appropriate the money in any way other than what we say in the amendment. Uh, and this money also comes off the top. So there's two places that the money goes uh, first before it's divvied up to some of these other uh, services. Uh, first, it goes to the Department of Health and Senior Services to pay for the regulation of the program, and it also goes to the expungements. Those two things come off the top of the money. And so they have to make those appropriations before they can ever touch the money to go to veterans, uh, to go to drug abuse and uh, treatment services, uh, they ha and uh, to uh, the uh, 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 
public defender system. So, you know, they could, in theory, I suppose, uh, just not appropriate any of the money and let it pile up. Uh, but I've never really met legislators that didn't like spending money. Uh, so I, I think they will uh, uh, appropriate them. And this is the same thing that we do on the medical program uh, with regards to, you know, the in theory, the legislature could have uh, just refused to fund the Department of Health and Senior Services uh, in the initial part of that. But they said, you know, this has been voted in by the people. Uh, the money has to go to them. That's our constitutional requirement. And I, if they really, really just didn't do it, uh, you know, we could seek a court order to force them to do it because that's that's what they did with Medicaid expansion. And the legislature, you know, did not did not do that. Under the expungement language, kind of, is that mainly possession? Would it be paraphernalia charges also be dropped? Kind of what is included in that? Yeah, possession, paraphernalia charges. Uh, uh, it would also include sales. Uh, as long as it is a marijuana offense that is uh, not violent, not sales to minors, not driving under the influence. So if the legislature itself kind of saw this expungement language and did not think it went far enough, would the passage of Amendment 3 kind of complicate any legislation they would maybe want to pass on this front? No. Uh, it, it, uh, they could pass something that is more expansive than this. They, they would still have that ability. Uh, there's nothing in there that says, you know, this is uh, this precludes other expungements uh, available at law. Uh, and so they could always pass something that is uh, is broader or expunge, you know, uh, other other offenses. You know, they passed an expungement bill, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago uh, that does allow for the expungement of uh, quite a few offenses under Missouri law. But it's again, it's something that has to be applied for. It's costly. Uh, of, of the hundreds of thousands of people that are eligible for expungement in Missouri, only you know in the single thousands have actually gone through that process. Uh, so you know we, we certainly encourage them to. Uh, at least this is you know uh, as a campaign, uh, we we're only focused on the amendment. But I'm I am a big advocate of criminal justice reform. That's why I'm passionate about this issue. I certainly hope they will pass broader expungement provisions on marijuana and a whole host of other things. The, the biggest criticism I've heard, and there's been a lot of criticisms, and we're going to go through most of them, is that this provides a pretty sizable advantage to existing medical marijuana license holders, and they're going to make a lot of money off of this because it's pretty easy for them to sell adult-use marijuana if they already have medical. I'd like you to respond to that. Sure. So uh, every state that has passed adult use legalization has allowed the existing medical marijuana uh, operators to, uh, you know, change their licenses over to uh, sell adult use marijuana. Uh, but you know, we have a very competitive market here in Missouri already. Uh, this is one of the most competitive. Uh, it has the most licenses per capita for medical marijuana outside of one single other state, and that state's Oklahoma, where it's just a. Like if you look at a chart, it's like a crazy outlier. And in fact, they. Uh, put in a moratorium on new licenses there because they basically said it has gotten to a point where we cannot regulate this program. Uh, but so it is a it is a very competitive market, uh, and we still are issuing uh, a minimum. There is no maximum. The department uh, can issue more of these licenses and are ordered to issue more licenses to meet market demand any time. But a minimum of 144 new licenses uh, that are also going to be coming in and competing in the market. Uh, and you know if you compare that to what say Illinois did. Uh, you know, they issued uh, about, I believe, 75 uh, dispensary licenses and I think maybe 30 or 40 uh, cultivation licenses for a state that's twice our size. Uh, so, you know, we're still per capita doing basically twice what Illinois did uh, when they passed their adult use legalization. Now, obviously, there's been a diverse group of funders for this, but I've noticed a lot of the funders are 
I would assume, license holders that could benefit financially from that. Do you think that's the reason why they're pouring a lot of money to pass this? Because they could see a financial benefit from it. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's certainly true. Uh, you know, there is uh, a lot of the people that backed uh, the medical marijuana amendment were also people that were seeking to get licenses in the state. Uh, but we also have support from a lot of uh, nonprofit organizations that see this as just being for the, you know, for the for the good of the of the state. Uh, you know, we have the support of uh, the, the national drug policy groups. They put in a lot of money on the, the medical amendment. Uh, they put in a fair amount of money on the signature collection this time. Uh, and then, you know, uh, not so much in uh, the way of finances, but, you know, we have the support of a lot of different uh, coalition partners like the ACLU, uh, you know, like uh, Freedom Inc. over in Kansas City, Empower Missouri. You know, it's a we have a fairly good list of endorsers and they don't stand to gain anything financially from it. They just know that this is good policy. So, uh, you know, one of the kind of thoughts that's going through maybe voters heads right now is kind of you know, this isn't perfect, but there may not be another opportunity to legalize marijuana soon. Kind of, do you agree with that? Kind of, what are your thoughts on the people who might be hesitating, but seeing this as maybe their chance right now? Well, you know, I would definitely say there is no such thing as a perfect piece of uh, legislation or perfect amendment. Uh, you know, I'm a realist. I uh, always, nothing is ever the panacea. Everything is always uh, in progress uh, towards a goal. So, uh, but, you know, I think this is a very, very good uh, amendment. Uh, I, I think it's one of the it is the broadest and most comprehensive legalization proposal that's been put out there anywhere in the country, uh, frankly. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that uh, I would encourage people to kind of look at what other states have done. Uh, I, I think a lot of times people uh, that are uh, very favorable, you know, they really love this issue. They're very favorable to it, uh, but they just kind of construct what their perfect uh, bill or, you know, piece of legislation is in a vacuum. And, you know, when we write a ballot initiative and when, frankly, legislators write something, they don't do that. They they sit down and they look at what other states have done. And that's what we did is look at what other states have done and try to put things in line with that. Because, uh, you know, I think Missouri voters are very much ready to make this, uh, make this decision and make us the 20th state to legalize the adult use of marijuana. Uh, but I don't think they're ready to do it in a way that is just completely novel and different than what anyone else has done. So, you know, there are places where we go further than other states, but we're still working within kind of the general framework that we've seen in other states. Another criticism is that people could still be fined if they're caught smoking marijuana in public. Do you want to talk about a little bit of that policy and, and the criticism of that? Sure. So what we say in the amendment is that, uh, you know, public use remains prohibited. Uh, however, it is decriminalized. Uh, so, you know, what would happen now is you would get a charge for the uh, amount of marijuana that you have on you, and that could be either a misdemeanor or a felony. Uh, and what we say is that it's a, an infraction uh, and that the maximum fine, we don't set a minimum fine, but the maximum fine is $100. Uh, and we also say that local governments can designate places uh, and businesses uh, as uh, places where public use is allowed. Uh, so, you know, if the, the city of St. Louis, you know, the city of St. Louis doesn't have an open container law where uh, at least that's that's what I've always been told. And certainly no one seems to enforce it around here. I don't know. Uh, but it, it's uh, you know, that's very different than the way that, say, Springfield or Joplin enforces al uh, open alcohol consumption. Uh, and they would, you know, if those cities want to have different uh, policies on how public use is enforced and maybe the city of St. Louis wants to designate certain areas as places where people can consume in public. Uh, that is totally within their rights 
under this law. Uh, but you know, going back to this point about what other states have done and what what you know, kind of the public where public sentiment is on this, uh, there's no state that has just outright legalized uh, public use. Uh, the state that kind of comes closest is New York, where they said. Uh, any place where smoking tobacco is legal, then smoking marijuana is also legal. Uh, and that's basically, you know, they New York City is a, a very densely populated area. If there was just no place in public where one could consume, well, you just may be out of places that you could consume. Uh, so I definitely understand why they made that sort of policy decision. But it still remains the case that local governments there could say, well, we just don't want people smoking tobacco or or, or marijuana at all and prohibit it. And there are a lot of places in New York City and across that state where that is prohibited. Uh, so, you know, the uh, I, I think those decisions are best left at the local level. And that's, uh, you know, that's what we have here. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think that this is an area where, you know, individual rights do kind of come into tension with uh, the public, uh, public good, because, if you're out in public, that does start to affect other people, and there there can be legitimate concerns about uh, about using in public that don't arise if you're using in the privacy of your own home or apartment. Was this particular provision maybe targeted at people who don't smoke marijuana and and don't want their city or town to be overrun by marijuana smokers? Uh, you know, I, I think it's uh, targeted at the broad swath of the population that thinks that uh, marijuana should be legal, but maybe wants some, uh, definitely wants some sort of forms of regulation on it so that it's not just, you know, uh, everywhere. Uh, you know, going back to the, we, we want to treat this a lot like alcohol, uh, and uh, it, it is totally legal in the state to buy alcohol, to consume alcohol if you're over the age of 21, uh, but you can't ju- do that just anywhere. There are regulations at both the si- uh, state and local levels on it. So can you explain why there's a limit on the amount of marijuana somebody can have on them at one time? And can you explain what those limits are? Sure. So uh, every single state has some kind of possession limit on how much you can possess. And essentially, the reason for that is that this is still a federally prohibited substance. Uh, and if uh, somebody could just have, you know, it, it is a way to prevent uh, diversion into other states. Because if somebody could legally have just a thousand pounds and then they're driving in Kentu- into Kentucky, where there's essentially no form of legal marijuana, and that, you know, there's there's only one thing that they're planning to do with that. It, it, and it's uh, it, it is not legal, uh, but if you don't have a way to enforce that within the state, then the feds could come in and say, hey, this program is uh, you know, out of control. We need to, we're cracking down on it. Uh, and that's, you know, the, the Cole memo is not technically still in effect, but it's kind of in, in effect in practice. Uh, that was something that the Obama administration said, uh, issued, you know, guidelines on how a state can have a legal marijuana program and not face federal blowback. And one of the things was, prevent diversion into states that don't have, uh, well, prevent, you know, keep it all within the state. That is pretty much the, the requirement there. Uh, and so uh, this is, that is uh, something that is, is, that's why there are these possession limits in every state. Uh, and so we will have a possession limit of three ounces for non-patients, for anyone over 21. Uh, for medical marijuana patients, it would be six ounces. Uh, and uh, that's an increase of uh, from four ounces currently. Uh, and we would have one of the higher uh, possession 
possession limits in the country. Uh, again, kind of comparing to our, our neighbor to the east, Illinois, uh, the possession limit there is 30 grams, which is just over one ounce. So about three times what, what someone can possess in Illinois. And, you know, I'll, I'll be frank that, uh, you know, in my ideal world, eventually there aren't possession limits. Uh, you know, the, the, if this goes federally legal, it's legal in all 50 states. I don't think that policy is necessary at that point, but that's not the world we live in today. So one of the other arguments that I've heard from opponents is that this does not go far enough to eradicate the racial disparities that are usually seen in the marijuana industry. In addition to explaining what Amendment 3 does to to deal with that, do you have any ideas about what would make these disparities go away? Because you need a, like a lot of money to get into this industry, and black and brown people typically don't have access to capital compared to white people. Yeah, there are certainly things that we do to address that, but there are you know deeper systemic things that, or federal things that uh, you know uh, we're are are outside our capabilities. Uh, but one thing we do is that you know all the new licenses are uh, targeted at you know, kind of social equity applicants. Uh, none of those, none of the criteria for applying and holding one of those licenses are specifically race-based, but they are based around the idea of uh, you know uh, groups and communities that have been particularly harmed by the prohibition on marijuana. Uh, so if you come from a community where the rate of arrest and conviction for marijuana is higher than average by a certain percentage, uh, if you come from a place where uh, you know the, there is a high rate of poverty or you yourself have a uh, you know uh, limited uh, uh, income and uh, 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 net worth, uh, or if you come from a place with an unaccredited school district, uh, there is a, a whole host of things that would make one eligible to uh, to apply for and hold one of these micro licenses. Uh, and you know the goal there is to uh, bring in groups that have been uh, found it difficult to break into the uh, existing medical marijuana industry. And you know that's been something. This has been an issue then uh, not just in Missouri but everywhere. And one of the big reasons is is that this is still federally, again, going back to the federal issue here. So you don't have access to banks uh, and not that uh, banks have always been a great source of uh, you know, capitalizing uh, minority communities either. But uh, what everyone you know, has to do now to raise capital is through uh, you know, private equity, venture capital, uh, and those are even more you know, even harder to penetrate. At least with a bank, you can walk in and say, "Here's my business plan," and uh, you know, I'd like you to consider me for a loan. Uh, with uh, with these groups, you know, you you basically have to know somebody uh, in order to get uh, uh, you know an introduction to even try to get those uh, to raise those funds uh, to to run your business. And so, since they're you know th- essentially the uh, all the access to capital in the cannabis industry is based on that, uh, that makes it extremely difficult. Uh, and so, you know. One of the things that we can do at the state level to help change that is, uh, you know, we, we basically give protections to banks here in the state that are state chartered, also remove uh, what is called uh, 280E in the uh, federal tax code, which treats uh, uh, forbids any cannabis companies from uh, taking normal business deductions, which means that they often pay tax rates that are effectively 50, 60 percent. We remove that out of the state tax code. But, you know, at the federal level, uh, that that awaits congressional action. And there's really nothing that we can we can do about it. But, you know, if there's if there is actually progress on this descheduling stuff, that would actually be a huge win for for equity in the industry, because it would allow for more traditional access to capital, less punitive taxation rates, et cetera. We'll be right back after this quick break with John Payne. 
And we're back on Politically Speaking with John Payne. He is working to pass Amendment 3 on November 8th, which would legalize adult-use marijuana in Missouri. So I was just telling you before the show, there are obviously a lot of smaller conflicts with Amendment 3. But in my opinion, the big conflict is whether Missouri should have a system where anybody can get a license and it's basically an unlimited system versus kind of what we have now, which is a more restrictive system where there's a finite amount of licenses. I'd like you to explain, even though you did talk about how maybe there are more licenses than other states, it's still a restricted system. Like, not everybody is going to be able to open up a dispensary after Amendment 3 is passed. And I'd like you to explain, like, why you feel like not having an unlimited system is better for the state. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's uh, again kind of goes back to some of these issues about uh, the, the federal uh, prohibition on marijuana and the, the need to have a, a tightly regulated system because we do essentially operate under uh, a mandate to prevent diversion and to uh, both to people under the age of 21 and also uh, to anything out of state. Uh, and so in order to be able to have a regulatory system that can actually get its arms around the, the number of licenses in the state, uh, you know, it, it can't start out with, you know, 10,000 licenses. Uh, it's just uh, uh, and, you know, there are like thousands of licenses out there for, say, alcohol. But that, w- that didn't happen overnight. Uh, you know, that is something that's uh, been around forever. They've built uh, this bureaucracy to, to handle that. Uh, but with marijuana, this is something that is new. Uh, it takes a while to get their, uh, get, get, build up the infrastructure to actually uh, manage all that. Uh, and, you know, the states that have had unlimited license systems, uh, basically Oklahoma and Oregon are the, the two key examples. And both of them have eventually had to come back and say, no, we need some limit on the number I'm, of licenses. I'm glad you mentioned Oregon. And um, I was just recently in Oregon. I was actually primarily on the coast, so I was not in Portland. And it was very noticeable to me there was like a dispensary on every corner. Now, obviously, you just mentioned that they've changed that. But I think that people would see a state like Oregon and be like, this is good that there are so many marijuana businesses because it could drive the price down. It could allow for more competition and it could allow for more people to get into the market. What would you say to that? It was also definitely allowing for a lot more diversion uh, from uh, Oregon and Oklahoma have had uh, major issues with that. I mean, the federal government has actually come into or, uh, to Oklahoma in a pretty major way and actually shut down literally hundreds of uh, businesses there that were uh, essentially fronts for organized uh, organized crime to move large amounts of marijuana. Uh, and that's that's the that's the risk there is that you have uh, a bunch of these that if you're not well regulated, uh, you don't really know what's happening with those licenses. Uh, And, uh, you know, again, I think in a a perfect world, we do want to ultimately move towards having more competition in the market. Uh, But it's just the, you know, the the reality of where we're at politically and with the the federal law. Uh, You know, there are a lot of people that do favor marijuana legalization, but they don't want 20 marijuana shops in their neighborhood. Uh, You know, that's that is there are quite a few folks out there like that. And so we have to be 
cognizant of that. Uh, so, you know, I think we struck kind of a middle ground between a very tightly no- limited number of licenses, uh, you know, like a like a state like Illinois, especially when it started out on the medical side, uh, where it was it wasn't just uh, that they had a number of licenses that they were starting out with and then maybe they would expand down the road. It was a hard cap. You know, this is the number of licenses. That's it. Uh, unless they pass some new law to allow for more, which they did eventually. Uh, but, uh, you know, what we've said is. Here is a minimum number of licenses uh, in all these categories, and that number can go up and shall go up uh, by the if the if the department determines that the market need is there for it. Uh, and so, you know, that's uh, we've actually seen a fairly decent increase in the number of licenses on the medical marijuana side, and I think we'll continue to see that and continue to see increases in the number of uh, the the new new licenses as time goes on. Uh, but it's just you know not gonna I I think. Having it go from zero to ten thousand in uh, the span of a year, which is literally what happened in Oklahoma, uh, that that's a a challenge for regulators, and it creates a and the and the public. Uh, you know that's uh, it it leads to a lot of conflict uh, with uh, existing businesses, uh, people that uh, are seeing these things everywhere, uh, and so you know we we do need to have some measure of control over that, and so I I, I think a, a gradual growth to more and more licenses is the way to go. Yeah, walk me through kind of what the department has to do to increase those number of licenses kind of and and what are the criteria that would maybe need to be met. So the department essentially has unilateral power to increase the number of licenses at will. Uh, so a lot of the increase that has come uh, in the recent past has been through the appeals process. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that applied for licenses and didn't get one. Uh, and so the department has started to settle quite a few of those. Uh, and uh, so I think particularly in the uh, on the number of dispensaries, there's now about, uh, I guess, 15 Fifteen percent more than they were required to issue uh, that have been uh, uh, sent out since the uh, uh, since the initial start of the program. Uh, so they they can do that at pretty much any time. Uh, but uh, in Amendment Three, there is specific language that says uh, the department has to conduct a market study to determine you know if the uh, kind of what the price point is here in the state, how that compares to other states, uh, and if there's if we're if we're not seeing enough competition to release more licenses. So they would have to release more licenses than a result of that market study? Yes. Okay. Do you think that, uh, change of topic, uh, do you think that Missourians are ready to legalize marijuana for adult use from the state? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's been a fair amount of public polling out there that shows that uh, Missourians support this. We've done our own polling. It's uh, uh, been solid majorities in favor. And if you look at other states that have passed this, you know, uh, yeah, people always think about like, Oh, Colorado, Oregon, California, which are obviously much more much more democratic, liberal states than us. Uh, but you know, this is not really that partisan of an, of an issue. There are gaps, but it's not like you would see with a with a political candidate or a lot of other uh, hot button partisan issues. Uh, there is solid support among all parties, uh, all political persuasions for the idea of legalizing marijuana, and that's reflected on the fact that states like you know Montana have voted to legalize marijuana. Uh, South Dakota voted. For for it, although that that particular uh, amendment in 2020 got uh, uh, thrown out by the courts, and they're back this year with another one. But voters did support it in South Dakota, which is even more conservative by by a long shot uh, than Missouri. What would you say to someone who feels like marijuana is a dangerous drug that should remain illegal? 
You know, I'm not going to say that uh, marijuana is harmless. Uh, there's certainly risks. There are risks to any any sort of substance. There's risks to, uh, you know, uh, unhealthy foods. Uh, all these things, uh, everything in life has some risks. So I, I don't want to portray it as uh, having uh, no no potential downside. But I think the, the way that we deal with those sorts of downsides in a free society where adults are allowed to make decisions for themselves about what's what's best for their own lives is to have some measure of regulation, to have, uh, you know, allow for uh, the marijuana to be tested, to make sure it's free of contaminants, to make sure it's free of uh, anything that could be deleterious that, you know, to, to human health, uh, and to provide information about what the potential risks are. Uh, but from there, I, I think uh, adults should be able to make those decisions about what is what is best for their own lives. Can you detail like, where the revenue from this will go to? Sure. Uh, so there is a 6% tax on the retail sale of adult-use marijuana at the state level. There's also a 3%, a potential to add on 3% at the local level. And that, that local uh, money can be spent however that community decides. Now, the 6% tax, uh, that uh, first, like I said earlier, off the top, it goes to the Department of Health and Senior Services to regulate the program and to pay for the expungements. Those are the first two places it goes. And I think uh, there was just an article in the Post Dispatch by uh, Kurt Ayer and that showed that uh, the, the courts have already started requesting this money. Uh, obviously, that, you know, in anticipation that Amendment 3 passes. If it, if it weren't to, that, that that request would go away. But uh, they think it's going to cost about $6.5 million to, to process those expungements. And uh, the auditor's office estimates that we're going to bring in about $40 million a year. So we can cover that, no problem. Uh, but then once those two things are paid for, then we have, uh, it goes to Missouri, Missouri Veterans Healthcare then to uh, drug abuse and addiction treatment programs, uh, and then to the public defenders program, uh, public defender program, and it's split evenly between those three places. What would you say to the argument that those three items, while well-meaning, may not be the best way to spend the revenue on this? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, there's there's an infinite way the uh, one could spend money. Uh, there's that's always the case. And we looked at a lot of different things. Uh, you know, one of the one of the ones we talked a lot about uh, in the drafting process was education uh, and also roads. Those, those two came up quite a bit. The issue there uh, for both of those is that the the amount that is spent by the state in, on both those things is in the billions of dollars. Right. And so the, you know, giving 10, 20 million dollars to those uh, areas. It's just kind of a drop in the bucket, frankly. Uh, and so we wanted to put it in into programs where we could really make a difference, make a noticeable impact for those programs. And, you know, the Missouri Veterans Commission, that's an area where there is a fair amount of federal funding, uh, but there was really no state funding uh, for those programs prior to uh, Amendment 2 passing, and this would increase that through Amendment 3. Uh, and then uh, very similarly, uh, you know, the Public Defender Program, that is something that has been just chronically underfunded, and it doesn't have a huge budget. budget you know, uh, but uh, putting some money towards that uh, can help resolve the, that chronic underfunding that we've been seeing with that uh, with the public defenders. And I think it's also uh, you know very in line with what we're trying to do as a criminal justice reform measure. Uh, you know, I, I believe that. Uh, the system of uh, our judicial system is set up in a very good way uh, that it is a uh, the, the adversarial system of the courts works quite well if 
you have a good attorney uh, who isn't, you know, doing three times as much work as they, they're supposed to be doing. And the public defenders program where they're carrying, you know, three, four, five times the, the caseload that they should be, uh, you just can't adequately represent your clients in that, uh, in that way. And so then, you know, prosecutors can kind of run all over the, uh, the defendants. And uh, we want to make sure people aren't getting overcharged or charged with things they didn't, didn't do. Uh, and so we, that's another way that we're trying to, you know, uh, bring some criminal justice reform to the state. If uh, this ends up passing, do you think this could s- start a conversation about legalizing other drugs which are currently illegal? You know, I, I don't think the state is uh, likely to legalize uh, any other drugs, uh, but uh, at least any time in the near future. But I do think that I would, and I, and this is, you know, my personal opinion. This is. Uh, I understand. <laughs> this is Amendment Three is not. I want to make clear to our listeners, Amendment Three is not legalizing any other drugs. I'm just talking about this philosophically. But. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I've been a critic of the drug war for twenty. 20 plus years. I, uh, when I was at WashU, I was part of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Uh, so this is the, this whole area is a passion of mine. And you know, I, I certainly hope that we start talking about uh, ways that we can move to a less punitive approach uh, to uh, to drugs and not you know locking people up for for simple possession of drugs and you know making it more of a, a health issue as opposed to uh, a, a criminal justice one. Thank you so much for joining us today. And as we mentioned, if you want to hear the other side of Amendment 3, we have an episode with State Representative Ashley Bland Manlove that you can listen to wherever you get your podcasts. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow all of our stories at stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Sarah, how can people follow you on Twitter? Sarah K. Kellogg, two L's, two G's. And how could people find out more about Amendment 3? Yeah, so they can go to our website, which is LegalMo22.com, LegalMo22. uh, And that is also our handle on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, LegalMo22. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.